Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan. In 2010, the national government signed up to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And in 2019, a working group was asked to consider how Aotearoa could give effect to that commitment, resulting in a report called Hepuapua. A government report which spent two years languishing in obscurity before being catapulted into the headlines. The country, the future, you know, what's the partnership like? What are Indigenous rights all about? So there's so much to do. It's not about just circulating a document. It's kicked off a war of words. When she told media on Monday that she plans to have public engagement on the Hea Puapua report, when will that public engagement take place and what form will it take? Can you please give your view on whether the leader of the opposition's continued attack on Māori is racist? It's seen MPs kicked out of the House. Order. The member will now leave the chamber. It's dominated headlines. The Prime Minister says a report about Māori rights wasn't released earlier because of the concerns it might have been construed as government policy. There have been fiery scenes in Parliament as the Māori Party co-leader was kicked out, accusing Judith Collins of Māori bashing. The Prime Minister says the government has nothing to hide over a report commissioned on how to better uphold Indigenous rights. And a lot of political mileage has been made out of it. The latest thing National has revealed about the government's Heapuapua report relates to the conservation estate. You know, there is a big red button on the leader's desk on the third floor of Parliament in the opposition leader's office, and when things are going badly, you bash that race button. So, what is Heapuapua? Why was it commissioned? What's so scary about it? And what are the government's obligations when it comes to these recommendations? Today on The Detail, one of the authors of the Hepuapua document, Dr Claire Charters, helps to separate the fact from the fiction. Let's talk a little bit about the origins of this. Sure. To an extent, it kind of goes back to the mid-2000s, doesn't it? 2007. Um, if not earlier. If not earlier, yeah. Yeah. So the UN issues this declaration on the rights of Indigenous peoples. 144 countries vote for it. Four vote against it. We were one of the four that voted yes. against it. Yes. Why? Why? Uh, that's got a longer story, I think. Um, and part of that story is actually Forshaw and Seabed, yeah. I think. Um, bearing in mind that 2007 was not that long after Forshaw and Seabed and not long after the um, brash Orewa speech. And so there was a period, there was a political period of time that I don't think was um, very open to thinking about Māori rights. Mm. Just to remind you, in 2004, then-National Leader Don Brash delivered a speech to the Orewa Rotary Club. In it, he essentially advocated a one-rule-for-all philosophy and called for an end to what he perceived as special privileges for Māori. National's polling immediately jumped, and many political commentators feel this led other political parties, including the then-governing Labour Party, to back away from discussion around improving outcomes for Māori. You can see a certain level of um, conservatism around um, adopting a declaration that might require changes to New Zealand's legal and constitutional structure. And that that I understand. I mean, changing a constitution in your legal structure is not an easy thing to do, and it's something that you should do properly. Um, But I don't think the declaration did that in nearly the same way as the government maintained. Yeah. So that that was... where I think there was some difference of opinion. The UN Declaration is a bit vague and idealistic, as UN declarations tend to be. After all, there are lots of countries with Indigenous people who have their own grievances and aims. 
It cuts across a bunch of different areas, rights of indigenous peoples to self-determination, to protect their culture, rights to their own governance and economic development and health rights. It also talks about things like land rights and other areas which, if they were implemented literally, would be a bit tricky. And this is one of the reasons why we didn't sign up in the first place. For example, Article 26 of the Declaration says... Indigenous peoples have the right to the lands, territories and resources which they have traditionally owned. The then Māori Affairs Minister, the late Parikura Horamea, said at the time that some lands traditionally owned by Māori are now lawfully owned by other people, both Māori and non-Māori. And so agreeing to this article would be incompatible with New Zealand's rule of law. 144 countries voted for the declaration, with Australia, the USA, Canada and New Zealand the outliers. But in 2010, under John Key's national-led government, we reversed that position. Why? Canada and Australia supported, Mm -hmm. and New Zealand was the outlier, and the US had indicated that it was going to change its position too. And I I just don't think it was politically tenable for, for New Zealand to be the only state in the world Mm. to not accept the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It was embarrassing enough, I think, for New Zealand to be one of the four opposing the Declaration because of our perceived reputation with respect to Indigenous Peoples. So that was embarrassing enough. And I don't think the New Zealand government in 2007 had ever anticipated that it was only going to be four states Mm -hmm. who would oppose it. Um, and so I think that was a bit of a surprise, and I, I you know, genuinely think or, or suspect it was embarrassing. It takes another eight years for us to agree to a national plan of action, and in 2019, a working group is assembled to create a report, which would later become He Puapua. What was your remit? Like what, I mean, in plain English, plain English terms, you know, what is He Puapua about? Yeah. Essentially, like to, to sum it up, it was to come up with some sort of plan and guidance to the advice to the government about what a plan um, of action might look like to realise the declaration. So in broad terms, that that was what we were asked to do. I guess part of that was um, in in direction to what would engagement look like on this, Mm. what's the process moving forward, and certainly not to provide this is what it must look like, but as the minister at the time described it, a line of sight about how you might achieve you know, compliance with these rights and so on. It was also very much a process or ideas driven by Te Tiriti or Waitangi mm. as well, which we think is really important. Um, in fact, we think it's the basic document from which we should all work from, mm. um, and the declaration just provides some some meat on those bones in a contemporary setting. Mm. I don't know whether you find this frustrating or not, maybe you get into it, but... Mm-hmm. In a way, it's, it feels like He Puapua has been characterised or painted or portrayed as being this document which is like concrete government policy. Mm-hmm. Do you really think that this government is trying to introduce um, separatism by stealth, given the speech that you made the other yeah. day? Yes, I do, actually. I think it's very clear. Um, the He Puapua document, which was not uh, released fully without redaction, we just happened to get a copy of it, and um, was very clear and it was a very worrying document until, and even more worrying, and when we saw that some of this, these recommendations are already being implemented. I think it's time for a national discussion and conversation for New Zealanders to work out 
where they want to see this going and what is the end result, what does this look like and people need to have an upfront discussion and the Prime Minister needs to front up on it and give some straight answers. I mean, I think that portrayal is is really inaccurate, actually, because it's not government policy, at least certainly not yet, and um, it never. That's not our role as an independent working group. We're we're an independent working group to provide some ideas and advice. So, it's certainly not that. And this idea that it's done by stealth, um, I think, is the word, the phrase that's being used. Um, I don't think it was that either. I th- the government didn't know what we were going to recommend in, in terms of the specifics and its options. But what's really important and what was important to us as an independent working group, at least, was that these are ideas that we think would give you a, a, a ultimately a declaration, kind of realise the declaration, let's say. But none of this can happen until you have Māori support until you have some sort of national conversation about this because it's not for an independent working group to decide concretely what this looks like. Um, Of course we can provide some expert opinion and we can provide some ideas to put on the table because certainly we bring some international perspective about what's going on elsewhere and we, we certainly I think collectively find that New Zealand's falling behind quite a long way, significantly so, with respect to self-determination, for example. So we can bring that to the debate, but we can't determine for Aotearoa New Zealand what that's going to look like, but we really would like to have that conversation and and have that, and particularly with Māori. I mean, this is really about Indigenous people's rights, mm. so you have to have Indigenous people, Māori, um, agreeing with some of the ideas. Is it a bit frustrating in that sense that it's kind of not set on the shelf, but sort of set on the shelf. I mean, the government hasn't come out and really, you know, for, for the best part of a year and a half. The report, He Poor was prepared by Tipuni Kokiri, the Ministry for Māori Development. It's not yet been to Cabinet and wasn't proactively released. The government only made it public after it was forced to. Because of a concern that it would be misconstrued as government policy, <laughs> I rest my case. The government has very clearly been doing everything it can to obfuscate and obscure this report. Um, yes, that was frustrating. And we were in dialogue with the minister and the minister's office. It was um, Minister Mahuta at that point, And suggesting that it should be published. And I think the response was uh, for quite some period of time, and I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for this, that the government was really focused on COVID response. And, and it, there was, it was important that to Puni Kōkiri and uh, the Minister of Māori Affairs um, focus on there was a real potential that Māori would be seriously impacted by COVID. And so I think that was legitimate to some extent. So it's really the, the period post the initial response to COVID, once things were clearer about how the government was going to respond and what sort of resources, it was that period that I think I found a bit problematic. That, And, I, you know, I I do really wish the government had published it earlier because they could then clearly make clear that this is a working group report. We are going to, well, it's not up up to me again to determine what the government does, but this is how we're going to respond to it. But, you know, here's as a start of a discussion, or actually it's really continuing a discussion that's Mm. been going on since 1840 one way or another. So I do think that it's unfortunate that it's come out in the way that it's come out. 
um, it should have been proactively released. It seems almost like the way that it's been catapulted into the media and the wider sort of public consciousness mm. is, you know, a couple of the ideas in this report have been embraced. The government's announced it will create a Māori health authority as part of its massive overhaul of the health system. And enacted. Mm-hmm. The government is to introduce legislation to uphold council decisions to establish Māori wards. And then some opposition politician mm. has gotten their hands on this report mm-hmm. and and is inferring from the fact that mm-hmm. a couple of these ideas have yep. been embraced that everything is going mm-hmm. to be rolled out over mm-hmm. the next 20 years. Yes, but I sincerely believe that some of the ministers responsible for some of those reforms weren't aware of Hipuapua. Yeah. So when Andrew, Andrew Little said that he hadn't even read it, I, I absolutely think that's true, at least from my ongoing discussion with, with officials, that it just hadn't quite got there. Mm. And saying that um, some of the recommendations that we make in Hiapuapua, particularly for more immediate impact, are things we could see on the horizon. Yeah, and you things know, that we were already talking work, about. That's eh? right, that's yeah. right. Um, so, I mean, given the Waitangi Tribunal report with respect to health, the fact that there's now a Māori Health Authority was going to be a Māori Health Authority, it should be of no surprise mm. to, to anyone. Um, there's been a lot of work around criminal justice, as we know, because it's a, it's a travesty, um, particularly for Māori. Um, and so there's an open development of policy around criminal justice, for example. Mm. And I... So, and that we try and refer to in our report is, well, these are good immediate steps and for this, but it would be nice to have this line of vision about where we're going, and that's, again, up for debate, but here's what it could look like. Mm. So I, I think that's really an, an inaccurate description. Now, the report includes, as publicly available, includes a range of things, some of which are very sensible about Māori language and so forth, some of which are probably a bit of a stretch around, you know, what... Upper Houses of Parliament. Yeah, that yeah, sort of thing. Yep, yep. Yep. <laughs> so, so there, are, there are, you know, there's a range of things, but this is just a working group report done by a group of individuals. That has sat on a shelf for two years gathering dust. The Cabinet hasn't even considered it yet. And the idea is that there is some secret plan by the government to create Māori control that's going to undermine democracy and we all have to be very afraid because democracy is under threat. You point out in the report yes. that rangatiratanga Māori ranges from full independence at one end of the spectrum yeah. to participation in state government at the other. That's right. It's a huge spectrum of options huge, that we're looking huge at here. Spectrum. That's and right. I think that you that's sort of reflected in the ideas that you sort of come up with some of yep. them, as you say, permanent local government Māori wards. Yes. That's already, yep. that's already there. And that was on the table, I guess, or there was discussion about them. Exactly. Yep. Prisoners exactly. voting. Yes. That's, that's already right. part of the that's discussion. Right. Reclaiming Māori geographical names. Yes. That's already in the, end exactly. of the, in the discussion. Exactly. At the other end of the spectrum, compulsory te reo in primary schools. I mean, that's exactly. part of the discussion, but that will take a long time yep. to get to that kind of level. Exactly. A Māori court system. Yes. An upper house, slash yes. senate. You know, yep. those are more, much more amb- ambitious and stuff that will take a long time. Which is why we've got this vision till 2040 and and, um, that's you know I think there's been a lot of work around 2040 obviously as the 200 years. Um, So yeah exactly and you'd have to have some sort of support I think from Māori Dim and the the nation as a whole for that and on that spectrum I think and and as we say in here Pōpō this on the Indigenous and Māori participation in state governance. New Zealand's not doing so badly because mm. we've got the Māori seats and so on. I mean, it's certainly not perfect, but but um, there is some uh, participation there. 
But where New Zealand really falls down, and this is internationally and comparatively, is with respect to realising places and spaces where Māori should have some authority and say over what happens with respect to Māori, with respect, with respect to our land, um, with respect to our people and so on. And that's where we are such an outlier. Mm. I mean, in the US you've got nearly 600 nations with whose inherent sovereignty is recognised. Mm. The Canadian settlement system is all about recognising shared jurisdiction with um, particular nations and, and over a raft of issues. In uh, the Nordic countries, you have Sami parliaments, so that's true of Finland, uh, Norway and Sweden. Greenland has, often, has been working for a long time with the Danish government to exercise almost absolute self-governance. Mm. Now, that's a slightly different situation because you've got Greenland, which is territorially a long way away from, from the colonial power, Denmark. So that's a different situation. But that fact of um, some form of indigenous governance over our own people is we we are New Zealand is so far behind. Are there elements of things in that report that you can rule out happening, such as a separate yeah, and look, well, parliament or justices? Look, whilst you know, I don't want to be in the position of a report that hasn't even come before cabinet, going through individual items within it. I was already asked about that in Parliament, uh, I believe, one or two, or two or three weeks ago, and I did rule out the separate Parliament at that point. But ultimately, I don't think it's that helpful for a report that hasn't gone before Cabinet to go through that individual process. And again, I make the point, this is a document that's available online, hasn't been received by Cabinet, and I think is being used as a political tool. It's been a lot of discussion around this document and the idea of separatism. Mm-hmm. I would like to know whether you think that this sort of gets into a nomenclature thing in terms of the difference between separatism and autonomy. Yep, absolutely. And also different conceptions of equality as well. So the separatism idea, I think, comes from a very old understanding of equality that you treat everyone, every individual, exactly the same, right? So if you treat different groups differently, that's separate, Mm. right? And or if some groups have autonomy, as you say, um, that that's separatism. I, I mean, I personally think that's a, that's a wrong interpretation and certainly outdated interpretation of equality um, and certainly a very comparatively unusual interpretation of equality mm. for the reasons that I've already mentioned, that understandings of equality in other states is often about providing autonomy. Mm. And so in a situation where... In Aotearoa, we have Māori failing or comparatively (laughs) experiencing an enormous amount of inequality across pretty much all socioeconomic indicia. Part of that is explained by Māori living under a system that's not our own, Mm. and that's inherently totally and creates absolute inequality, right? So that the system (laughs) that Māori are living under is, is... really colonial um, and continues to be colonial. The, the the fact of the system that includes you know parliaments, courts is so unusual to Te Māori. Now I, I absolutely accept that things have moved on since then and as individuals we grow up in a system and, and have some familiarity with it but I still don't think it's responsive or dealing really at heart with um, Māori ways of thinking about how to deal with problems. Mm. And so that creates, as I as mentioned, Ori, and inequality. And as part of the reason, personally, I think, and, and, and I think is proven by statistics, that Māori are experiencing such an inequality on the ground at an individual level, but also from a 
philosophical structural mm-hmm. level, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so yeah, questions about separatism. It's not so much about separatism. It's about Māori having an opportunity to live and exist under a system that's partly our own in cooperation with the government. The state's not going anywhere, I don't think. I think even some of the, the scholars who are most um, strong on te ranga tiratanga, except that the state's here to stay and has has authority here too, might be illegal at inception and under the treaty, for example, but and illegitimate. But today, perhaps legitimacy has grown through this political fact of state sovereignty. So the state's not going anywhere and should potentially have have a massive role in regulation. But when it comes to things Māori, there has to be spaces for Māori to regulate ourselves as well. Particularly, our, you know, we mentioned in the report, our lands, um, everything that goes with respect to Māori culture. I mean, it's weird to me to have a English system, IP system, an intellectual property system, for example, regulating Māori culture because they're, they're philosophically opposed to one another. Um, you have to work out ways in which those legal systems will talk to talk to one another. But fortunately, we have around the globe so many examples of that that we can refer to. The, the US on a daily basis has always got these jurisdictional questions, and you, you develop um, what we might call conflict of laws. That's what that's the technical term, rules to deal with those jurisdictional boundaries. What would you say to people who are scared about how Hipuapu has been framed? Who are mm-hmm. worried about the way mm-hmm. that it's been sort of portrayed in the media and are just reading the media headlines mm-hmm. who are not going to sure. read the report in and of itself. Like yeah. how, what would you say to, to those people? I would say that the report and also us as authors were really motivated by unity rather than division, by this idea to have a successful and flourishing Aotearoa New Zealand. We need to recognise our founding constitutional document and that Māori are failing in the system. And until there's equality for Māori, it will be very difficult to have a unified state. And that having forms of Māori authority is about achieving equality and better outcomes for for Māori. And it's proven, there's lots of empirical data that Indigenous peoples do better when when we're regulating ourselves to some extent, you know, shared authority with the state, of course. And so to achieve unity, you need to um, make sure that we're all flourishing, mm. not just uh, non-Māori and, and also other, other groups, which I think is really important too. And that is where you'll find unity. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Dr. Claire Charters. Matewa.